0: Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit elitelearning.com/podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Hi and thanks for joining. I'm Jana Emil and I'll be your host today. And with me I have Dr. Sally Miller. Dr. Sally Miller, would you like to introduce yourself? Just tell us a little bit about yourself before we get started.
1: I would be happy to. I am a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner currently practicing here in an outpatient setting in Nevada. I am also board certified as a family nurse practitioner and acute care nurse practitioner, et cetera, et cetera. I've been a nurse practitioner for almost 30 years. In addition to the consistent practice I've always maintained, I'm a clinical professor at Drexel University. I am a lecturer with Fitzgerald Health Education Associates have been there 21 years and uh, I am a fellow of the American Academy of Nurse Practitioners. So little bits of everything.
0: Yeah, awesome. I want to open up our conversation about this mental health and wellness because we hear it a lot, right? So this is really the whole impetus of, of kind of the conversations we're happening. We're hearing a lot of this in the general public, in the healthcare workforce and our healthcare professionals, just kind of this mental unwellness that we're all kind of feeling mm-hmm. over these last two years. So, I was actually reading, Sally, I'd read this article over the weekend, and it was highlighting a story about a nurse who recently passed from suicide, unfortunately. And in that article it was really citing burnout and mental wellness, mental health, and kind of that support. And then I was diving in deeper to see more research, and I saw some numbers, some stats, and so I'll share that. And it was from the Journal of General Internal Medicine, and it was talking about these different percentages, and I'll tell you what they were. In this, they surveyed 500 doctors, nurses, and other healthcare workers, and in there, 74% said they were depressed, 37% said that they had experienced symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, and 15% said they had thoughts of suicide and self-harm. I was wondering if you can help us just start there and better understand not just the data, but if we can start with this depression piece and then just kind of like talk about all these different ones. But one thing that I think about, what's the difference between
1: I'm sad or I'm depressed? It's such an important question. So again, I really am glad for the opportunity to offer some clarity because it's huge. Yes, it's it you know It's the beginning of how we approach the patient. You know, when we were talking about anxiety in previous episodes, I mentioned that anxiety itself is a normal response to a perceived threat. Depression is a normal response to an unpleasant or unhappy event, whether it's, you know, they experience it or observe it, or it happens to someone around you. Like really everything in mental health, the things that people feel and experience are normal feelings. It becomes a symptom when the feeling is disproportionate to the stimulus or there isn't a stimulus or it becomes incapacitating. And so being depressed is something that all of us feel once in a while when something that's depressing happens. That's a normal feeling. It is really important to recognize that feeling depressed does not mean you have a diagnosis of major depressive disorder mm. or major depressive episode. And on the flip side there are people that do have diagnoses of major depressive disorder and don't feel depressed because depression is just one state of mind so to speak it's one potential symptom but a diagnosis of major depressive disorder or even major depressive episode a single episode there are diagnostic criteria for it it involves a minimum of five symptoms among several domains and depressed mood may or may not be one of them.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So sometimes then, we feel like feeling depressed is the actual diagnosis. Like, I have depression, and that's that's it. This is who I am forever. This is a, a, a lifetime type of diagnosis. So there are steps to just arriving to it. It's not that I'm just feeling kind of down for
1: these last couple of days. That's not enough to say, this is depression, right? Absolutely not. And everybody needs to know that, including people who are diagnosing people with depression and Mm -hmm. treating them for it. I mean, in mental health, more than any other aspect of, of patient care, we have to rely on a good symptom assessment from the patient. I don't know if I said this in one of the previous episodes. It's one of my favorite lines. We don't have CAT scans or MRIs or metabolic panels or EKGs to diagnose mental health disorders. We we don't have any of that. What we have is our best assessment of symptoms from the patient, but there are validated diagnostic criteria. And in the same way that we wouldn't diagnose hypertension without documenting a blood pressure under the right circumstances that exceeds 140 over 90 millimeters mercury on two separate occasions, I mean, there's diagnostic criteria. One episode of elevated blood pressure doesn't mean you have hypertension. In the same way, feeling depressed does not mean you are having a major depressive episode, and it shouldn't be treated like a major depressive episode. It should be treated like you would treat someone who feels depressed.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And so, in saying that, if if you were treating patients that were feeling depressed, and let's say that you do arrive to a diagnosis of depress a diagnosis of depression, excuse me, is that something that that is lifelong? Is treatment then? Lifelong, whatever that is, if that's pharmacological or if it's different interventions, is this for the rest of of that client's life?
1: For some people, it is, and for many, it is not. So, speaking to probably primarily a non mental health focused primary care audience, typically not. Um, You know, if people that have a true biochemical imbalance, a real dysregulation that is the primary cause of their depression, unfortunately for them, it is a it is chronic illness, a chronic lifelong illness. And while they may have times when they can go off medication, just like with GERD or asthma or whatever, you know, it will wax and wane, depending on the environment. But there are people whose symptoms begin really early in the lifespan, typically by adolescence, if not before. And unfortunately for them, depression is probably going to be something, a feature in their life that requires some sort of management, drug therapy, non-drug therapy or both for the long haul. And in that circumstance, many times patients will want to try coming off medication. We maximize their non-pharmacologic interventions and we try it. And sometimes they are successful for a few months or a year or even a few years and then may have to come back on it. So that's a subset whose primary problem is truly physiologic. But the majority of the population that primary care nurse practitioners see is not that person. The majority are people that don't have a history of depression. They weren't depressed as adolescents or, or even young adults, but at some point in their adult life or, or, or any, any part in the lifespan, but at some defined period, there is some external event and, I mean, it could be so many things. What you or I may not perceive as catastrophic, somebody else would. So it's yeah. something, whether it's you know loss of, a, of an income or a partner or a friend or, or anything. Someone becomes depressed and they, they don't compensate well emotionally and they develop diagnostic criteria for a major depressive episode. Then they do have depression and they should be treated for it. But very often, the goal is that they get back to their non-depressed, pre-morbid state. Very often, if they're treated properly, and this is hugely important, if they go through an appropriate treatment trajectory, it is very realistic for the goal to be in one year. You will not need medication, and you will feel as well as you did before this thing happened to you.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. So I want to ask then to see if I'm understanding this as I put together these concepts, right? The relationship between anxiety and depression, is it that a person must be experiencing some type of feelings of like classic symptoms of anxiety in order to get to a point of depression? Or are those things not necessarily related, directly aligned in that way that one doesn't need to be present without the other?
1: As is usually the case, it's, it's complicated. So the short yeah. answer to your question is they are two separate disorders. They are Got two it. separate diagnoses. And people absolutely may have one and not the other. Got it. But there's always a but. <laughs> but wait, yeah. there's more. There's always <laughs> a but. And the but is that many times there's symptom overlap. Mm. And some of the symptoms of depression are the same as those of an anxiety disorder. And people may have symptoms of both. And so if they have diagnostic criteria for both, then you will see dual diagnoses of depression and anxiety. It's become so common to see them put together alone, this depression, anxiety. And sometimes it's valid and sometimes it's not. Whereas with anxiety, I think I mentioned that for virtually every every single anxiety disorder, of which there are several, but for every one, two core features must be there, worry and anxiety.
0: And then mm-hmm.
1: we differentiate the disorder based on how long the symptoms have been present, what other symptoms are there, is there a trigger or source or not? You know, That's how we differentiate one form of anxiety disorder from the other, that's anxiety. But in depression, the diagnostic criteria for depression require at a minimum that the patient have either depressed mood or amedonia or a, a sense of not looking forward to anything. One or the other must be there. And then from among nine other domains, we look for a collection of symptoms. A minimum of five is what the diagnostic criteria is, just like your two blood pressures for hypertension, a minimum right. of five criteria for depression. But unlike any anxiety disorder, where anxiety as a symptom must be there, with depressive disorder as a diagnosis, depression as a symptom isn't necessarily there. And lots of patients will say to me, I don't feel depressed. I don't feel sad. I just have no ambition, no motivation. I don't want to do anything. I don't look forward to anything. You know, I'm tired all the time. I'm hopeless about the future. These are all your other symptoms of a major depressive episode. And if I can add one more thing, because when you're talking about these disorders and almost any mental health disorder, really, there are a handful of neurotransmitters that are at the root of the biologic piece, norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine, GABA, and glutamate. And there's a few other ancillary ones, but they're the big five. And if they are dysregulated in one neurological pathway, you'll have one set of symptoms and maybe be depressed. And if they're abnormal in another pathway, you may have a different set of symptoms and have anxiety disorder. So it's not a big surprise that if they're dysregulated in one pathway, they may be dysregulated in another pathway as well, which is why very often mental health diagnoses, they're they're comorbid. People have more than one at a time.
0: Got it. That makes a lot of sense. It's very helpful. So now and then I want to talk about this other piece of data here. We talked about, or I talked about here when I was reading, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. So honestly, I am really guilty, even as a nurse, of hearing PTSD. And the first thing that comes to my mind, I think about war, right? I think about like these big type of events. And that's how I envision PTSD. And I know that's not that's not it, right? That's just not how people only develop this. And I was a little bit, maybe not shocked, but I think surprised in seeing that data pop up and these type of symptoms and and manifestations people are happening. I thought PTSD is a symptom that's happening now. What is that?
1: So there's there's a couple of things there to to dissect. One is that these are healthcare providers' self-report, right, of symptoms. And so, you know, feeling depressed is a feeling. And I'm not surprised that 74% said that because when you are caring for patients that are dying from a new entity that people don't understand, and it's scary and they're separated from their family and all of these horrible things are happening. And you're worried about your own health. I'd be worried if you didn't go home feeling depressed sometimes, you know, so that, that makes sense to me. But PTSD is a medical diagnosis and like every diagnosis, it has diagnostic criteria. We really don't want to use a diagnosis without the patient meeting criteria because right. that's the beginning of the best practices. So, when healthcare providers say that they feel like they have PTSD, my first concern is no healthcare provider should diagnose themselves. You, yeah, you have a fool definitely. for a patient when you try to take care of yourself, whether you're an attorney or a healthcare provider or, oh, I don't know, whatever you do, we shouldn't be taking care of ourselves. We are not objective and we shouldn't be making our own diagnoses. Mm-hmm. So, and aside from that, many healthcare providers truly don't understand the diagnostic criteria for PTSD. And because it is a specific type of anxiety disorder with a very specific type of treatment to have good outcomes, I'd be a little careful in interpreting that number as truly diagnostic rather than, you know, I've been exposed to this horrible stuff and, and I'm feeling this way. So having, you know, having said that, I mean, I'm I'm not discounting the way they feel at all. Like you said, so many people think of PTSD as this you know a major like you served in war and you know the people that stormed the beach at normandy or even some of our more contemporary horrific firefights and we think of that as causing ptsd but the thing to keep in mind about ptsd is that amongst the diagnostic criteria are that the patient has either him or herself experienced something overwhelmingly traumatic or observed something traumatic. And so different people, different things are traumatic to different people. For some people, a a really catastrophic divorce is a traumatic event and can lead to PTSD. For some people, uh, the, the loss of a pet, you know, maybe at like, it is hit by a car or unexpectedly or someone like anything, any, it's it's really what it means to the person. So while, you know, the big major stuff like, you know, major explosions and wars and and all of these major catastrophic things in the world, everybody would agree that they're traumatic events and can produce PTSD in some people. But there are people that live every day and experience things that you or I might not normally regard as that level of catastrophe, but it can be to them. In fact, I'll give you an example. If, you don't, if I can take two minutes to give you what's Absolutely, such a perfect please. example of this and about getting the right diagnosis. Um, I have a patient that I treat for generalized anxiety disorder for years now, several years, and she sees a therapist who is excellent and they've done great work. And this lady, you know, she is on medication for her generalized anxiety disorder. She also works with a therapist. And for probably the last year and a half, she's been the best she's ever been. She will always be a little anxious. You know, it's it's not, we don't completely obliterate it in someone for whom it's lifelong, but she feels the best she's ever been. She acknowledges, you know, that, she, you know, she really feels comfortable and she likes her medicines and she likes what her therapy is doing for her and everything has been good so for she has regularly scheduled three month interval visits which is what we usually do for a maintenance you know just to make sure things are well and she's been that way for about a year and a half and then I know about four or five months ago she had a car accident and I only know it because her employer had some questions about the medicine she was on and so, so I knew about it for that reason. But other than that, she, you know, she physically, she was fine. She seemed to manage well. And that was that. And then about a month and a half ago, her therapist called me and said, I think her anxiety is getting worse. You know, we need to do something with her. And she said, she's just having these panic attacks. She's having bad panic attacks. And I said, oh, well, you know, she had that accident. Could it have anything to do with that? And the therapist said, I don't think so. She's really self-aware. We've talked about it. I don't think it's the accident. So I saw the patient. She was having new onset panic attacks. That really wasn't what her anxiety focused on before. But now she was having panic attacks. And while I, I really did believe it was related to the car, It wasn't really clear with her, she was just upset. I I trust her therapist, I trusted her. So I changed her medication a little bit and she came back for a follow-up a month later and said it didn't make any difference at all. And I said, all right, we we have to dig into this car accident. And as we started talking, it became much clearer, it wasn't clear the first time, but it became very clear that her panic attacks were directly related to having to drive somewhere having to drive not go somewhere oh, just the active driving she if somebody else drove her she was fine if she was going to take a bus wow. she was fine in the rest of her life at work at home she was not having panic attacks she was having flat-out panic attacks at the thought or the action of driving a car and i said this is ptsd this is absolute classic ptsd she said but that was months ago and i said that's also classic ptsd one of the diagnostic criteria is there is a distinct time difference between the event and the anxiety they don't happen right away if they do mm-hmm. it's not ptsd so for her this car accident produced P- produced a classic classic textbook ptsd so that was a trigger for her
0: yeah wow wow that's interesting so then in the same kind of token right in the same type of vein I imagine that there's kind of like this cascade. We definitely can can slide down things like anxiety, depression, PTSD, any of these. And to your point, when you said if you're thinking that you need help, the answer is yes, right? The answer is yes, you do. And so I'm wondering if there are things that just as individuals, as just regular people walking about, or professionals, right, that are healthcare workers, NPs, any providers. If there are resources or interventions or things that we can do, if we have a patient who's having these thoughts of self-harm or a friend or a colleague, anything that you found most helpful in your practice, right? There's a lot of things we learn to do, even in our education, but things that you have found aside from that, that's been very helpful and really impactful with your patients and or, you know,
1: peers, well, there, there's a few different things. You know, first of all, in every in every setting in medicine, including mental health, safety first, right? Ensuring yeah. the patient is safe first is the number one priority. So, if whether it's a bedside nurse or another nurse practitioner or a therapist or anyone on the street, whether you're interacting with a patient or your friend or your family or anyone, if if they indicate in any way. That they are considering self harm or suicide. If you have the remotest concern about them causing physical harm to themselves, they need, they need to talk to someone who is a pro, someone who is really trained to manage that. And that's why it's so important that we have, like, you know, our national, our national um, helplines and guidelines suicidepreventionlifeline.org. SuicidePreventionLifeline.org. It's a website, so if, you know, younger people seem to be very inclined to do things electronically and with social media and all that, so they they might want a website. So that's one. Um, There is a 24/7 phone line. It's 800-273-TALK, 8255, but to try to remember it's TALK. But the very cool thing is that on July 16th of this year, a national three-digit suicide hotline goes live. The number is 988. Just like 911 for emergency, 988 is, for, is a suicide line. So it's easy Excellent. for people to remember. You know, 273-TALK, sometimes people will forget that, or, you know, is it 273, 275? But 988, everybody can remember 988. And remember those, it, again, if you find yourself wondering, is it that serious? Is it that imminent? Is it, is it? The answer is Yes. So call. Yeah. So call. And if it turns out that maybe the person wasn't going to hurt themselves that day, well, hooray. You know, awesome. But right. calling, I mean, I, I really do believe that suicide is, that there is a biologic component there, and that and redirecting thought and process, having the person process can help alleviate that biologic process. I mean... The, the instinct to live is the most basal primitive instinct that human beings have. And to purposely take action to overcome that, I feel like there has to be some biological dysregulation in the same way that there is an anxiety disorders and depressive disorders, et cetera. And we know that when we process through thoughts or memories, or when we just process a line of thought, it actually restructures that thought on a biological level. And so just getting on that hotline and talking with someone about anything or nothing or whatever it is can get that person past that crisis state. And then there's time to get them into the care they need. So that, so that's that. So 273 talk, right? 988, the hotline. I think for anybody where you think of self-harm, that's a big deal. In terms of people who are feeling depressed, because of this overwhelming thing or feeling anxious or having trouble with the trauma, whether we call it PTSD or not. There are things that that everyone at every level can do. The bedside nurse, the non-psychiatric provider. One of the most important things is to remember that all these tag phrases like information is power, knowledge is success, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't, Patients and their families need information. Whatever you can tell them to answer any question they have, it just gives them a little bit of a sense of control. You know, feeling out of control and feeling helpless and hopeless, these are core features of depression. And when we don't know, when we just don't know and nobody will tell us, it exacerbates that feeling of hopelessness and helplessness. And then the brain will do what the brain does is try to fill in the blanks. And it usually doesn't go well. So for the bedside nurse, and again, I know it's easy to say and hard to do. I totally know what it's like to be overwhelmed and understaffed and your patients are crashing and you don't have time to spend a half an hour with the family who's scared or the patient who's alone. I I do get it. I'm not saying any of this is easy because any change is hard. You know, we, we, we have to do the work. And so even if you don't have a half an hour to spend with a patient, if you can just take like... Time off two minutes on a clock. If you start counting two minutes, it's pretty long. You can go a long way in giving just some information, a little bit of reassurance, validating the way they feel, answering a question. Sometimes it's as simple as, I need a different glass of water. It is this phenomenon of feeling out of control that is so devastating to patients and families, and even the nurses and nurse practitioners and everybody else who are taking care of these people. So one thing we can all do is provide any information we can. And if we can't, if they're asking questions that we just don't know the answer to, to try to help find a way to answer it, or, or give them something that's realistic, that's a plan that's a direction it just helps people feel in control i think that's huge from the perspective of a nurse practitioner what we can do whether it's nurses who are our patients or our friends or family or whatever i would val- be very careful about you know yes validate the feeling but but be careful not to suggest a diagnosis that doesn't exist because there's this other phenomenon in medicine referred to as anchoring And when we put it, when we put a diagnosis around somebody's neck, you know, to to use the analogy, it just stays there. It's a lot harder to take it off. And if we tell people that they're depressed, they, they think they are they are now depressed. They now have that diagnosis. We've you know, we're the pro and they're the lay people and they think we know what we're doing. So when we offer a diagnosis it becomes part of their identity. And then the last thing I'd I'd encourage my nurse practitioner peers to to not do, and I know it's tempting, please don't treat your friends. Like don't treat them on the side. I've seen several nurses Who's somebody who doesn't really do mental health, or isn't really make, you know, isn't really going through a diagnostic evaluation, but will give them an SSRI because that is commonly prescribed for anxiety disorders and depressive disorders, and they're trying to help and do them a favor and not have them have to miss work and not have a medical record of all of this stuff. It's not doing anybody any good, you know. Be be their friend, but you're the clinician first. And if you really think that they need medication, then they really need an appropriate evaluation.
0: Right. That's that's an excellent point. This was really good. I've learned a lot. You know, I really think that even in my nurse mind, right, I I jumble up a lot of these concepts so much. And I think that even hearing about what's happening right in these last two years and talking about all the burnout and anxiety, I definitely am jumbling it up a lot in my mind. So this was very helpful. You know, I was going to ask you those links and the numbers that you share, especially the 988, that's awesome. Is that something that family members too, or friends could use to say, hey, like I'm just having a concern. Is there something that maybe you can help me to do here?
1: So this this line this the suicide prevention lifeline yeah. they channel to all sorts of local resources. I mean, there's it's, it's like the top of a pyramid, and there's all sorts of resources available. That is definitely a place to start. Uh, I mean, for anyone who just doesn't know, they just don't know what to do. I think, and I mean, there's just we see so many people taking their lives. It is just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I. I, I can't even tell you how many people, not just professionally, but in my right. personal world I have known who have lost children, you know, adult children, adolescents. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just horrific. And so, yes, anybody, they need a starting point, 988. Well, after July sixteenth, nine 988. Right now, it's 273-TALK, 800-273-TALK.
0: Excellent, awesome. Sally, I appreciate you so much for joining me again today. Another great, great dialogue around mental health and wellness and learning about what these concepts really mean. So thank you again for always imparting so much knowledge on us. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. And thank all of you for tuning in. We definitely hope that you'll join us again next time for another discussion about all things mental health and how we can put it into work every day in our practice and in our lives. So I'm John A. Miel, and on behalf of myself and Dr. Miller, thank you for joining and goodbye for now.